Before we dig into this morning's passage, I think there's a few elephants in the room that we need to address in regards to this passage. Uh, see, in our church, we do what's called expository preaching. That means uh, we don't come up with topics and then try to figure out how the Scripture can say what we want to say, but we go through book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Uh, one of the advantages of that is that we get better context. Uh, it's it's very hard to take something out of context when you are teaching it in order. Uh, the flip side of that is you can't skip over hard passages. And uh, today is one of those. Um, so the first thing I want to, us to think about is when we hear the word submission and suffering, those are words that stop us cold, as is the word servant or slavery. We need to own the fact that throughout history, there are people who have professed Christ who have taken verses like the one we're going to talk about today out of context in a way to commit grievous sins against other human beings. Uh, Owning other human beings, human trafficking other human beings. And while that is not the intention of the Scripture we're talking today, we just need to own that people in the past have done that. But we don't need to hide from Scripture any more than a school teacher would give up on spelling because, call me crazy, um, there was actually a thing in New York back in the 80s where uh, a group of people wanted to allow people to spell things any way they wanted to. And there were educators who advocated that if a student spelled cat, K-A-T, your response should not be, that's wrong, cat is spelled C-A-T. Their response was supposed to be, well, it's okay if you want to spell it that way. Just know that the majority of people spell it this way. And so by the same token that an educator would not give up on spelling because some educators mishandled it, we as Christians don't need to be scared of Scripture because there have been people who profess Christ who misused it. Uh, another thing that we struggle with when we hear the word servant uh, or slave, are immediate mind in Western culture goes back to the slavery of America and um, Europe. Uh, you know, human trafficking, owning of people, abusing of people based primarily on race. And that is also not what we're talking about. The word the Bible would use for that type of slavery is doulos. The word that is used here that I'm not even going to try to pronounce is best translated bond servants. Um but we've got to be careful. Another thing we're just going to, I want you to know before we get into the text that we've got to be careful of is many pastors will dumb these passages down and say, hey, this is how you deal with your employer-employee relationship. And while I can see why they would do that, because bond servants, um, they could be anything from a butler to a doctor. They would uh, be able to earn money. They would be able to buy their own freedom. They would be able to hold political office. Um, They were able to travel in a lot of scenarios. But at the end of the day, we have to stop short on just accepting this as an employee-employer relationship because at the end of the day, until they bought their own freedom, they were still owned by another human being. And the word for master that we're going to look at in our Scripture today is despotato, which comes from the root for despot. So when... Uh, Peter is referring to a master. He's not referring to the best of people. 
The closest thing I can think to really uh, draw this to is military service. You know, where uh, you sign up with the military, you say, they say, we'll send you to college for four years, but you've got to come serve in the military for like three or four years. I mean, you're still basically a free person, but uh, you have committed your life to the government and with very few exceptions to get out of that. So for us today, I think Peter has shown us principles about how to live when there is a power gap between you and somebody else. Uh, this could work in the employer-employee relationship. Like I said, I understand why pastors go there. It could work in a coach-player relationship. It could work in a principal or dean and a student's um, relationship. But it's anywhere where somebody has power over you and your options are limited uh, for recourse. So, for example, uh, when I think of the employee-employer uh, relationship, I had a coworker when I first started where I'm at now. And I, I always could tell that he should have a job significantly higher than being my peer. I mean, based on his education, his skill set, the way he carried himself, a length of service. And I never could understand why he was my peer and not two or three levels above me until he finally uh, went to leave uh, for hospice because he was dying of stage four cancer. And he and I were talking and he shared the story with me that um, this organization we worked in, um, we worked for a man who didn't know what we did, and he covered for that by being a bully. So if you if you questioned him, uh, he would berate you and uh, do his best to punish you because he didn't want to look stupid, but he also didn't want to admit he didn't know what he was doing. He worked for a person who also didn't know what they were doing, but they were scared of not only my boss, who was actually their employee, but they were also scared of their boss, who was another person who had no idea what he was managing, and he dealt with that by intimidation and bullying. And so my coworker shared with me that he was in the meeting with the boss's boss's boss, who he used to work for directly, and the boss said something that was patently incorrect, and the company would have made a really poor decision if they uh, had done what he said. And so he called it out in the meeting and said, well, that's not exactly true. This is the way it works. Um, as soon as that meeting was over, the boss's boss's boss basically told him that he was going to destroy his life and he would never, he was going to demote him and he would never get a promotion at our company ever again. Uh, now, for a lot of people, they could have just gone and got another job, but this was also back in the time when pre-existing uh Conditions was a big thing, and it was hard to get a job with insurance if you had uh, a health problem. So him having stage four cancer, it wasn't like he could just up and jump a job. So while he had a level of freedom, this despot of a leader had control over him. And I would say this guy was a uh, was a devout Christian, and he carried himself with the utmost character. Um, I could share you uh, stories about coaches. You've probably all heard stories of coaches abusing their power with students. Uh, benching them if they didn't do certain things. Um, I also remember a story, speaking of the principal-student relationship, this is actually a principal-teacher relationship. I had a friend whose wife taught at a school. Um, the principal was notorious for the stereotypical uh, thing of giving players good grades so that they would never not be eligible to play. And this friend of mine's wife flunked a student 
Um, and the principal came to her and told her that if you don't switch that to an A, uh, you know, I will fire you. Um, she chose, because she didn't have tenure yet, she chose to stand for what was right. Um, even though it could cost her her job, she refused to change the grade. The principal changed the grade anyway. And ironically, within about three weeks, it turned out the principal was under investigation. And everybody that had participated in his scheme uh, of changing grades ended up getting punished. And she, had she gone along, she would have been punished. Um, so with all that said, let me give this one last caveat. Uh, the words of today's sermon, the words of today's text are for the servant and not the master. The oppressor finds no comfort in the Bible, and he finds no comfort in these passages. And I want to leave this with you guys. If you are being physically or emotionally abused, what we are talking about in these next passages is not for you to be silent and just take it. If you are in danger, get help. Let one of the elders know, and they can uh, advise you and help you. So let's begin with the life truth that I think is going to kind of set our place. And that's this. Satan's goal in your suffering is not your pain. That's not where he gets his pleasure. But rather in your sinning. Satan really could care less whether your suffering causes you pain. What he wants to see you do is turn against God, be angry with God, sin against God. We see this in Job chapter 1 and chapter 2. I've got the references in the the handout. But in both scenarios, Satan comes to God to test Job, and his focus isn't Job's pain. It isn't, ooh, let me get joy from giving him boils, let me give him joy from taking away his money, let me get joy from taking away his family. What he wanted was for Job to curse God. He wanted Job to quit following God. He wanted Job to walk away from God. And even Job's wife finally got to the point where she's like, why don't you just curse God and die? And that, and that's something we need to keep in mind is when we suffer, Satan's goal is not that pain we're feeling, but the sin he can bring out of us. Now, There's two pieces of context I want to share with you, and I promise at some point we're going to get to today's passage. There's two pieces of context I want to share with you. There's an immediate context. Uh, It's really... um, There's an immediate context, and there's another context that's really the context for the whole book of 1 Peter. But our immediate conduct, uh, context is 1 Peter 2.12 that David talked about a couple of weeks ago. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. You see, as Christians, we don't submit out of weakness like the world does. We don't submit out of weakness. We don't submit out of we're scared to lose our job or we're scared to be punished or we're scared to be ridiculed or we're scared not to make the starting lineup. That's not why we submit. We don't submit um, because 
we are going to get benefits. Like, well, the, the more compliant I am, you know, the better raises I'll get or, or maybe the more opportunities I'll get. That is not why we submit. The reason we submit is out of a desire to glorify God. And, and that's the context of what David preached on last week about submission to the government. Is what David will talk about. It'll be the context for what David talks about next week when he preaches on submission in the family. Uh, and it's, and it's our context as we talk about submission to, uh, powerful authorities, uh, in our life, the masters in our life is that we submit to glorify God. There's also this context that is the context, in my opinion, of all of First Peter, and it's this. First Peter 1, 6 through 9. In this you rejoice, though for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith and the salvation of your souls. You see, we have another life truth. God's goal in your... Okay, so we said Satan's goal in your suffering was you sinning. God's goal in your suffering and my suffering is for us to become more like Christ. 1 Peter 4.12 tells us this, Beloved, do not be surprised. How often are we surprised? At the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing so. So with all this context, let's dive into today's passage. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin 
and live righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your soul. Father God, we do not like to hear suffering. We do not like to hear submission. But Lord, may we humbly lay ourselves before your word today and hear what you have to say, Father God. Submit ourselves to your word and to your way. In Jesus' name, amen. As I was studying this passage, it seems like it broke down into two parts. What and how. And as a bonus, uh, I have a story to share with you at the end of how God personally blessed me during my time uh, of preparing for this message. So let's start with the what. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, it is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So what's the what? In your suffering, remain steadfast. When we suffer, we need to remain steadfast. And what does that look like? I think, I think we're given three principles here. The first one is to remain steadfast without condition. Here we see that dreaded English scenario of the not only, but also. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good ones, but also to the unjust. See, it's easy to be kind to our masters when they're good to us. When my boss gives me a raise, I want to work harder. When my boss gives me recognition, I want to work harder. When my boss gives me new opportunities, I want to work harder. When my boss lets me work on the projects I want to work on, I want to work harder. But it's not so easy to be faithful when the master is hard or unjust. If they, we end up saying things like, well, if they pay me more, then I'll work harder. When they give me the recognition I deserve, then I'll work harder. When they give me the projects I want, then I'll work hard. And sometimes it's not just like they're being mean, but just sometimes they're not just. There's a couple of guys in here who we all shared the same job and we shared the same manager at one point or other in our career. And we had this awesome benefit that the harder you worked and the better you were at your job, the more stuff you got to do. And the less hard you worked and the worse you were at your job, the less work they gave you to do. It was was an awesome feature. But even in that, um, you know, the temptation could have easily been, well, if so-and-so only has to do this, then I'm only going to do this. But, but it was being faithful regardless of the fairness of it all. Because, you see, Christians are held to a different standard than the world. You know, the world can say things like, if you pay me more, I'll work harder. The world can say things like, if you let me do what I want to do, I'll work harder. Well, I mean, they can say that till they get fired. But this is what we as Christians are called to do. Ephesians 6, 5 through 8 tells us this. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, 
with a sincere heart as you would for Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bond servant or free. And we find almost this exact same text in Colossians 3.22, 1 Timothy 6.1, and Titus 2.9. Almost word for word the same admonition. Because you and I, we don't work for our coach or our boss or our principal or the dean of our school. We work for the Lord. So when my boss is unfair to me, I still work hard because I'm not working for him to be nice to me. I'm working for the Lord. We see this with Daniel uh, and Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, you see uh, throughout the book of Daniel, Daniel was taken at the age of 15 into captivity. They tried to convert him to be a Chaldean and they taught him all the ways of the Chaldean they, they tried to socially engineer him. They tried to, to change the way he thinks and the way he worshiped. They changed his name. Um, and he stayed faithful to the Lord. But through that whole entire time of captivity, when Nebuchadnezzar was good to him and when Nebuchadnezzar was cruel to him, he did a good job. He did right by the king because he was doing right by the Lord. He wasn't serving Nebuchadnezzar, he was serving God, and Nebuchadnezzar got blessed because Daniel was being faithful to God. We see the one time Nebuchadnezzar, I mean, uh, Daniel pushed back was when Nebuchadnezzar told him to break the ceremonial laws that God had given, and he still, with respect, went to the leaders and said, hey, we don't do this. Can we do this and prove to you that God will be faithful? And and even to the point when Nebuchadnezzar came to Daniel with a dream that ultimately meant God was going to punish Nebuchadnezzar and give him the mind of an animal, Daniel's response was not like, yes, finally he got it. His response was, Woe, king, if only this vision was for your enemies and not you. He still felt compassion. And so when those in authority over us are are cruel and unjust, do we look for them to get what they deserve or do we still feel compassion to them? We see the same thing with Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Joseph was sold into slavery. Uh, He went to work in the home of Potiphar. He did a fantastic job for Potiphar because he was working for the Lord and not Potiphar. And the household was blessed up until Potiphar's wife wanted some cuddling. And I hope that was okay. Joseph said no, because he wasn't going to dishonor God and he wasn't going to dishonor Potiphar. And ultimately he got punished for doing the right thing. So we need to stay steadfast without condition. Whether we have a good master, whether we have a bad master, whether uh, we are going to get rewarded or whether we're going to get punished, we are steadfast regardless of condition. The next thing is we must remain steadfast 
with the right motivation. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. Peter says it's a gracious thing. What, what's the gracious thing? Suffering unjustly. But there's a caveat to when it's a gracious thing. When we are mindful of Christ. That is our motivation. That is our right motivation, that we are mindful of Christ. We don't take pleasure from, ooh, I'm being wrongfully persecuted. We are mindful of Christ. And it has to be unjust. Because see what verse 20 adds. For what credit is it if when you sin you are beaten for it and you endure? But when you do good and suffer and endure, this is the gracious thing in the sight of the Lord. First Peter 3.14 tells us this. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those of you who revile, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that be the will, than for doing evil. Again, we saw that example of Joseph, he did the right thing and he got punished for it because he went from being a slave to being a prisoner. We see that with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who are told to worship the image of the king and when they refuse to, they're told they're going to be thrown into a fiery furnace and they look at the king and say, look king, no disrespect, but we will not bow to your statue. And our Lord is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we are not going to bow to your statue. And this kind of goes in to our next point. This whole idea of honoring the Lord, having a defense for what our our hope is in, um, doing it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, because Peter also tells us we need to remain steadfast with our witness in mind. We don't just stand for what is right. We don't just... Submit because that's what we're told to do. Our witness that we are servants of the Most High God, we need to keep in mind. Because when you and I respond to suffering or anything else incorrectly, and we claim the name of Christ, that reflects on Him. And it reflects on our witness. It's very hard to uh, share Christ after you've just destroyed somebody on social media, you know. Remain steadfast with your witness in mind. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But when you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is the gracious thing in the sight of God. Back to the context I told you for our passage today, 1 Peter 2.12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And and this has an interesting look to the world. Daniel 5, 10 through 12 
is where Belshazzar had had uh, his vision um, with the finger on the wall about the impending fall of his kingdom. And everybody was troubled, and, and the queen, starting in verse 10, because of the words of the king and the lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not your thoughts alarm you, or color your color change. There is a man in your kingdom who is the in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, and the astrologers, because an excellent spirit. Knowledge and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king had named Belteshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show you the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought before the king, and the king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, the one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. You see, when we are living for God, when we're doing things God's way, when we are not letting our flesh control what we do, when we respond to, to adversity and, and suffering and submission the way God wants us to, people notice that. They might not know how to articulate it. And in the world of the Chaldeans, all they could think to say is, the spirit of the gods must be upon you. You have a spirit about you. It may just be, hey, there's just something about you. I notice when when the boss goes off and, you know, it doesn't get you down. You still work hard. You still work with the right attitude. You still work with the spirit. I don't hear you talking bad about the boss. I don't hear you talking behind the coach's back. I don't hear you trying to figure out how we can undermine the principle. There's just something about you. And when we have our witness in mind, there's going to be something about us that glorifies God and that draws people to the gospel. So how do we remain steadfast? You know, we said what? Remain steadfast. And I said there's a how. How do we remain steadfast? How do we remain steadfast without condition? How do we remain steadfast with the right motivation? Or the right attitude. How do we remain steadfast with our witness in mind? We do it by following Christ's example. Let's look at the rest of our passage for today. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He was reviled, and yet he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your soul." We have been called to follow Christ's example. To this we have been called. 
Ephesians 5, 1 through 2 tells us, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And, and when we're to be imitators of God, when we're to follow his example, this isn't creative time. This isn't, okay, I'm going to do my abstract drawing of Christ. You know, I don't get to go, I want Santa Claus Jesus. I don't want my buddy Jesus. I don't want, you know, Jesus who says, hey, it's all their fault. Okay, I do, but I don't need that. We need to follow Jesus as Jesus. Y'all may remember this, those of you who are my age or older. Uh, when you used to go to stores and you would have to sign things, like maybe you were putting something on layer or something, they used to have this magic blue paper that would lay between pieces of paper and you would sign it. And then an exact copy of your signature would be on a piece for them and then they would give you a piece. You know? I think it called it carbon paper. I don't remember. But, but that's what I'm talking about. Or like when you would, when you would, like when you're like me and like, you know, you, you, you want, you, you wanted to learn to draw, but you weren't really good at it. And you had all these friends who were like really good at drawing. And so you would get tracing paper and then you would trace the exact thing. And go, Oh, look what I draw. And then all your friends would be like, is that tracing paper? But, or like, you know, the whole point of a Xerox machine. And let me go ahead and clarify for those who don't know a Xerox machine. That is a copier. Uh, I made the mistake of going into the library and I needed an exact copy of something. I looked at the, college-age student who was working in the library, I said, can you Xerox something for me? She gave me a blank stare and said, maybe, what's a Xerox? And I just went home and cried a little bit. But that's what I'm talking about. We're called to follow Christ's example. And what an example it was. First, he gives us an example of endurance. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So what what, what was this example of endurance? He endured false accusations. He endured insults. He endured abuse. And he endured the cross. What a high standard we have been given to follow. We have another example, the foregoing of vengeance. This is the one I don't like. I'm just going to be honest with you. But I think it's the one the Lord wanted me to hear. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Our flesh wants vengeance. We enjoy when someone drops a witty, sane, or phenomenal comeback. I mean, one of the biggest trends on social media is, and you know, like YouTube and Facebook and all that, is these videos. It's like, watch person I agree with destroy, humiliate school person I disagree with on topic I'm passionate about. Like, we take too much enjoyment and stuff like that as a, as a society. We take pleasure in seeing the wicked exposed and punished, especially when it's not us being exposed or punished. And super especially when it's those who expose, who, uh, who wronged us that are being exposed and punished. As I prepared for this, I found myself made aware of a, a deep desire of vengeance that I thought I had dealt with in my heart. Um, and I thought I had, I had chosen to forego my right to vengeance and just kind of realized that was something I still needed to work on. 
And listen to 1 Peter 3, 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but to the contrary, bless, for this is what you were called to do, that you may obtain a blessing. Let us remember that Peter is the guy who went to Jesus and said, Jesus, if my brother wrongs me, how many times should I forgive him? Seven times? And he thought like, ooh, I nailed it seven times. I am a generously forgiving person. And Jesus responded, not seven times, but 70 times seven times. And let's just be clear, that doesn't mean you get to stop at 490. Um, but, but the same Peter who asked the question, how many times do I have to forgive, is the Peter who is now telling us, because he's been changed by the gospel, don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling as our flesh would tell us to. This next one is one that the Lord really ministered to me uh, as I was preparing for this message is this. His example of resting in confidence in God. Let's look at verse 23 again. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. But continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now look at that. It didn't say he entrusted himself. It said he continued entrusting himself. So he entrusted himself, and he entrusted himself. And he, I mean, I can almost envision, like, you know, the first time the disciples said something that just blew his mind. Like, I can't, they're never going to get it. He entrusted himself to God. He went to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he entrusted himself to God. On the cross... He said, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he breathed his last. Jesus continued entrusting himself to God. And we need to do that. We need to rest in confidence in God. We need to not just entrust ourselves, but continue entrusting ourselves. This last example, his example of loving abundantly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus held nothing back to those who persecuted and reviled him. In John 15, 12 through 11, Jesus tells us this. This is my greatest commandment. Or this is my commandment, I'm sorry. That you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. As hard as this is to live, we are called to follow Christ's example of loving abundantly. But what does that look like for you? I don't know. As the worship team comes up and the prayer partners come up, um, I want to tell you what it means for me. And then I'm going to invite you guys to come and pray with those who are available to ask what it means for you. So, you know, I, I shared with you that, uh, you know, throughout, throughout my life, uh, I, I share with you one story. Throughout my life, I've had three people in authority, um, wrong me deeply. The first was the scenario I told you where, uh, I had the boss who was a bully. Who worked for somebody who was scared of him and scared of her boss, and then the big boss who was also a bully. Um, you know, there came a point 
uh, were just, you know, entrusted that to God, really didn't know how to, to deal with it. Um, cause I loved my job other than the people I worked for. Uh, and then one day out of the blue with nothing but prayer, I showed up. My boss was demoted to my peer. The, his boss was laid off. And then the boss above them, it was just announced that one of the people he bullied more than anybody at our company was now his boss. He turned in his resignation two days later. So God dealt uh, with that scenario. I had another situation where I worked for another guy. It was another guy who just really didn't know what he was talking about. He was ex-military, uh, but he was also a bully. That's the way he dealt with things. Um, this one, I said something to somebody in passing, like, hey, man, I need a job. About a month later, they're like, hey, you want to come work for me? I was like, yes. Then I had another one. Um, this one just, it, it, for whatever reason, it it hit me. Like, the other one's just out of sight, out of mind. Um, you know, when people were laid off, demoted, when I got a new job, just really never thought about it again. But I had another one, it just, it just owned me. Um, I mean, to the point, it, it, it only made me kind of be agitated at home. Um, I really, um, I mean, I really, I didn't work my job as hard as I used to. I didn't pastor my family like I should have. I didn't, you know, I didn't, uh, shepherd my wife like I should have. I mean, just for whatever reason, just totally just had a great impact on my life. Um, I mean, just demoralized me. Um, and you know, just like the other two situations, um, I was moved out of that situation. It was kind of out of sight, out of mind, but every time something would come up that would remind me of that situation, I would find myself, uh, having turmoil in my heart, not to the point that I did in the, in the heart of it, but I, I kept finding myself having turmoil. And so finally I was like, you know, the Lord just wants me to forgive and forego vengeance. And so I actually listed out everything that this person had done. And I told this person, I forgive you for this, and I forgive you for this, and I forgive you for this, forgive you for this, forgive you for this. Um, and I was like, okay, I'm good. I'm good. And then I just realized that um, still every time something would remind me of this person, there was still something there. And that brings me to this last life truth that is founded in this he continued committing himself is we have to commit ourselves but we're going to have to keep committing you know if if i'm going to forego vengeance on some am i feeling my right for vengeance that's not necessarily going to be a one time maybe it will be but in a lot of situations it's not and i've got to be ready to every time that wells up inside me to forgive again and to forego vengeance again. And I'm not going to do that in my own flesh. I'm going to do that by committing to God. So I'm not committing not to be mad. I'm not committing uh, to forgive. I'm not committing uh, to not get revenge. I'm committing to God to help me forgive. I'm committing to God to help me forgo vengeance. I'm committing to God to help me be steadfast. And so I don't... Uh, and so for me... What the Lord said is you've got to commit. Every time you feel this coming up and you've got to commit to me again, that you're going to forgo vengeance and you are going to forgive. But not only that, you're going to follow my example. So for me, this is what my response to this message looks like. God has said to me, 
Jesus intercedes on your behalf. You don't deserve it. You have wronged Jesus. Um, but he intercedes on your behalf continually before the throne. And if you're going to follow the example of Jesus, Kevin, then you're going to intercede on behalf of this person on a regular basis because you're going to follow my footsteps. And so, you know, my flesh will be like, okay, Lord, I pray that he will be found out and I pray that he will, you know, no, no, that's not what God, God's like, that's not what he's saying. He's going to intercede on behalf, like, Pray that he's a good husband and pray that he's a good father and pray that he's a good friend and pray that, uh, the work and the ministry at church and, and the work in the world and whatever he puts his hand to, that he will have my favor and that he will be blessed and that he will be drawn closer to me. And so that's what the Lord has told me to do. The Lord has, has told me I've got to keep on committing and I've got to pray continually. And I know there are people in this room who have been wronged by uh, co-workers and, you know, pastors and uh, business owners and, you know, coaches and, you know, you name the scenario. I know there are people who have been, and maybe you've dealt with that. Maybe you're a lot better than I am. But I want to encourage you, if, you, if you're struggling with that, if you haven't dealt with that, come and take an opportunity and pray and see what God has for you. Because like I said, I, I found what God has for me to do based on this this word. And I just pray um, as the band plays that uh, you guys, if there's something that you're struggling with, that you will come and these men and women will seek the Lord with you.